Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counterguy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw philosophical quotes at anonymous folks and we ride along with where people's mouths go. The first quote, you should never return to water you knew as a child. The water you remembered has moved on. I look back at my past, my upbringing, and, and I, I like to uh, I know one guy said, you never, never think of success as a destination, it's a journey. It's the journey itself is whatever you call success. It's what's happening to you along the road. And so in that sense, I think I'm a history guy. So I love to look back at my own personal history. I've gone back to my childhood upbringing and house and just looked and, and, and took it in. You know, like, hey, I remember playing baseball in the front yard and, and remembered my friends. And to me, that was a soul-enriching thing. It was, it's not like, oh, gosh, those are the good old days. Uh-huh. It was more like, wow, that was, it was cool. That was, a, that was a moment in time that was a rich experience, and life wasn't always a drag. And, and I mean, if I'm going through a hard time or something, life wasn't always that way. I mean, there was, there was cool things. I do remember Little League. I do remember me and my brothers, you know, playing kick the can in the neighborhood kind of stuff. It depends on how you're looking at it, I guess. Is, am I really coming back here for because I can't move forward? Mm. Or am I going back and just taking a drink from a cool time and a, and a cool memory? Christmas is that way. Mm. I, I always commended my mom and dad for... Cool Christmases. It was hysterical. I love looking back and remembering my brothers and I would, you know, we'd be up at four o'clock in the morning knowing gifts were downstairs and we would kind of talk each other in going spying on what was down there. Uh-huh. So, but those are, I, I take a drink from that stuff. I mean, I think it's soul enriching. And so it has moved on. Of course it has. But then again, I don't know, if you, if you looked at all of life that way, you would have no past. We'd only have present and future, I guess. And at some point, your life is kind of summed up, just like a book, and you're going to be done. And that's really the, the past is all you would have. So I think I know what it's getting at. I guess I would couch it different and not say it quite that way because, you know, the metaphor of water, if it's using it that way, can be a very, you can get a good cold drink on a really hot day when you're really thirsty is a good thing. And you, I think you can draw that from your past, even especially your childhood. I, I really can. See, that's interesting that you mm. took it as, as still water and I took it as moving water and it, it didn't say either. Oh, okay. That, yeah. But that's, I mean, because I don't yeah. know the guy's mind, but I'm just saying, right. it's interesting how we both looked at the same thing and saw something different. And, and you, you know, you never step in the same river twice, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, but still, the shape of it's there. The water itself is moving, so I guess that's how I, yeah, I view it as, there's a paradoxical nature of that statement that it says, I need to make sure that I'm not living in my past or just defining myself by it, but I can go back and learn from it and enjoy it and drink from it or learn from it, I guess. That's, that's kind of how I take it. Yeah, I guess my whole regret of leaving my mother's womb. <laughs> Why did I leave? Again? I can't get yeah, back. Yeah, would I do this again? Yeah, yeah like, I can't get back in there. <laughs> she said, no. Uh, sometimes you do, you think, man, it was all warm in there. I was uh-huh. safe and didn't have a care in the world. And yeah. now I have nothing but cares in the world. Again, You should never return to water you knew as a child. The water you remembered has moved on. 
That kind of reminds me of the people that use the expression, the good old days, the good old days. And I remember certain foods, certain experiences, certain rides, certain entertainment that we have this mental impression how great it was, you know, a certain event, you know. And if we ever get a chance to uh, find that piece of candy they don't hardly make anymore and you get a bite into it, it's not as good as you remembered it. One thing that personally has really, really, really bothered me, sometimes with my friends, we can cut up and I'm feeling good and some of them not all roll, we'll laugh and just have a blast, you know. Sometimes I can be more comical than others. But then when I hear them planning maybe an event, maybe down the road later on, says, yeah, yeah, come on, Dave, why don't you come so we can have a lot of fun? That really gets me. It's all of a sudden, I'm expected to come and perform and make that evening happen again. And that really bothers me, you know. You know, I don't know what I'm going to be in the mood that day, and I can't put it on. And But I've heard that a lot. Yeah, Dave, you, you come on over. You, you got some funny stuff to say. <laughs> I cringe, you know. <laughs> and I've had people... Even when I was in the DJ work, says, oh, yeah, we need a DJ to get the life of the party going and all that. I thought, you know, you want an entertainer. You want a, a circus clown if that's what you want. <laughs> you know, I'm here to play music, and I'll do as jovial as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm not going to get out there and dance with a wig on and <laughs> make everybody laugh at me. That's not what the wedding's about anyway. But I always hated to be putting that expectation. And it would in- attend and not even go because I knew I was expected to. And people would be disappointed if we didn't have a big hee-hee-ha-ha because we did the last time. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't think they realize it. I don't think they mean bad of it. It kind of intimidates me. Along going with that, kind of down that same road, is uh, sometimes people just say, hey, come on up for supper. We'll have some friends over. Re- the immediate reaction is, well, who's coming? And that's really impolite to say that because basically you want to find out, well, am I going to have a good time or a bad time? <laughs> if it's a bunch of melancholy friends, you might not be so serious about coming. Uh-huh. That's very impolite to do, but everybody wants to know. It's nice when people say, we're going to have so-and-so over, we're going to have so-and-so over. Nice to know ahead of time. There's been a few times people didn't tell me and they invited somebody I really wouldn't care to be around, and I felt like they had used me, you know, or they might have had any idea at all. And say like a brother. We was going to have some brother time together, or maybe another friend, a close friend. We share a lot in common, and I had preconceived notions of... We were going to enjoy the old times and all our past experience and all that. I get there and somebody that's not part of the mix is there. And that means you, if you're the polite, you have to take a conversation and include them all that. And it just, all your good times went out the window, you know. <laughs> and I shouldn't feel that way, you know. You're supposed to include people and all that. But right. um, I got way off on that, didn't I? Yeah, but it's entertaining. <laughs> and I, and, and oh, no, you're going to expect me entertaining the next time. I, I wonder... To get back on the subject, I wonder if your view of this particular subject is maybe different because you never really had one hometown. You moved around all your life. Or do you consider you have a hometown? No, I guess I do. So there's no waters of home for you to return to, really? No, I've had two jobs I've been to twice. So you had, you had a job when you were a teenager, right? Well, the one first place I worked, yeah, I was mainly, well, that was the first job I had that type, and I was certainly a trainee, and Worked up to a decent position, and then I left for a time. Eventually, I went back as the shop supervisor. But what, 10, 20 years later? Yeah, 15 years later, probably. I mean, I had no notions about that going back, but I did realize that some of a, a few of the people that were still left from before, 
they were my co-workers, all of a sudden I was going to be their boss. Actually, a couple of them were in supervision when I was there before and maybe had done some training on my part, all of a sudden I was going to be their boss. And I realized that it could be awkward. I tried to handle it the best I could. But there are people that don't, you know, and they just make things tough, you know. So it wasn't a problem except one guy that had been a, a friend for a long time, or a co-worker, I should say, like the first day I walked in, he, he sat right there in front of everybody by the time clock. Yeah, I know Dave from a long time ago, and I'm going to butter up to him and stay on his good side. And that didn't happen. <laughs> first of all, he put myself in a bad position that I was going to give him special treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, then that put me on notice that I couldn't give him special treatment because they were going to be watching, you right. know. And we had to be fair with him, and he didn't like that. <laughs> he didn't like being fair. He wanted that special treatment. But it, it all turned out okay. And then the other time, when I went back to the other second job, when I first went there, after I'd went to, I don't want to say names, but at a high school, one, one place, went in the service, and then after, I was only about three or four or five years, then I went to another place, was there about 15 years. When I was at the second place the first time, it was a new and up, growing business the building was new they were adding on they were buying equipment as they went and growing and there was a lot of pride everything was clean and new a lot of good attitudes young people and at the time the attitude was they wanted to be the best they could be in the area they were want to be proud of their work i guess i thought it was going to be the same way when i got back well things had changed for one thing the building had, had aged the equipment had aged and they hadn't kept it up and it was a pigsty. You know? <laughs> so what I imagined to be this compared to where I had just come from, which really was bad and ancient, I had kept remembering this new machinery, this new building and everything was just up to date and modern. I got there, well, and the people had changed too. You know, they weren't very happy anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the young kids were tired and worn out, you know. Mm-hmm. I was disappointed, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you think that you made a big mistake? No, because I despised the other job so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I had already changed it a couple times, and I knew. I knew. I told myself, now when I go back up there, I know it's not going to be the same. And I know eventually the honeymoon's going to be over, and I'm going to not like this. I'm not going to like that, and I'm going to grumble about this. But i got to remember, it was so bad here that I had to keep reminding myself how glad I was when I got this job back. And I can't forget that, no matter how bad it gets. Again, you should never return to water you knew as a child. The water you remembered has moved on. Actually, you cannot, but you never forget the water. You go back for re-energizing, for uh, reconfirmation. Because that water, as a child, has helped form you as an adult. If you are happy with who you are, if you are at peace, great. If you're not, maybe you need to go back to that water. The earliest recollection is say, okay, this is where it, things start going bad. Okay, I'm a little bit older. Maybe I can deal with it now. Let's look at it. Mm-hmm. And change your life by your past experiences by revisiting that in your mind, anything that bothers you, you have to correct it. 
if you don't correct it, if you don't come to terms with it, if you're not at peace with it, it'll destroy your life. It'll be there nagging, nagging every day of your life. Is there something in your own life that was maybe nagging you from home, so to speak? So many things. As you grow, you know, through uh, your teen years, the autonomy, you know, I know everything. You can't tell me anything, you know. Of course, you're dumber than a fence post, <laughs> you know. So as you get a little bit older, you go, well, that was stupid. Why did I do that? Because I thought I knew everything. And that teaches you that you never know everything. You can always learn. Can you think of something that when you've, something didn't dawn on you until you went back to the waters of your childhood? I can think of something that happened this past weekend. Okay. <laughs> I'm a notary public for the state of Kentucky at large. I'm an honorable Kentucky colonel. I'm an honorably, honorably discharged veteran, and I'm a life member of uh, the Disabled American Veterans Association. I have been an upstanding member of this community ever since I've been here. My mother was a, a very dynamic woman, very intelligent, and uh, really created a life for herself here with a lot of respect in the black community and the white community. So. I knew when I moved here, I was going to have to mind my P's and Q's because I'm not going to embarrass my mother and destroy her legacy. Recently, a woman down the street starts telling people that I peeked in a window of her daughter's rented house and I never knew why they were lying. I couldn't understand and I was angry. Sure. I was I was very very angry. I was hurt. Started losing sleep. And this person who said that was a you considered fr you were friendly with? Or? Oh yeah. I mean, I taught a summer class for kids photography out of college. She was my assistant. She had a baby. I took pictures of her baby for a contest. You know, being a professional photographer and you know commercial photographer, I gave her my brother's lawnmower, which worked when hers was rot, the deck was rotted out, you know, and every time she could, she could spray with grass clippings. And her daughter wanted to move in a rental house across the street. It's church property. I'm over there all the time, picking up trash, cutting bushes, cutting grass. And then she says, she tells the Reverend, she saw me peeking in her daughter's window. And by this time, the Rev knew, we all knew, all the lies that they had told, you know, to get in there. And then she started up and down the neighborhood telling everybody. And I couldn't understand why. And then this weekend, I found out why. The woman's daughter and her boyfriend and his brother are drug dealers. And with me being over there, of course, the day they moved in, a black Cadillac showed up, and another car showed up, and the guy got out with, you know, his, 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 his pants mid-thigh. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, you know, what kind of people are these? I told the Reverend, the Reverend recognized the Cadillac as being the such-and-such's Cadillac, who was a drug dealer. The license plate off the, uh, the Chevy, I told her. She got in touch with the police, a friend of hers, drug dealer. Found out that 
I was killing their drug sale. They couldn't sell enough drugs out of that house to pay the rent, which is $400 a month. Well, how are you killing the drug sales? Being over there. Oh, they're cutting grass? Uh, Cutting grass, picking up trash, just being around. Doing the stuff he was doing. Well, they should get police to cut grass then, I guess, to clean up all the drugs in this town, huh? Yeah, I'm blocking that. So in this case, the waters of home have been peed in, more or less. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Again, you should never return to water you knew as a child. The water you remembered has moved on. I'm not the same person that I was back then, or when I was younger, or even five years from now. Like, you know, we all make mistakes. There was in a point in my life when I had maybe done something or there was something I didn't like, and I kept reliving that, and I was so unhappy with myself. But if we live in the past or if we live in regrets, We're never going to be able to live in the now, in the present, and we can miss on so many things that are happening now. Don't return to what you think you may know because it's gone. It's moved on, you know, and maybe it's a memory, Mm -hmm. but always try to live in the present or in the future. Obviously, you've moved away from your Uh home and you've went back, Mm -hmm. right? What about you is different? When I first moved away, I thought it was going to be the hardest thing ever. And someone told me it gets easier as the years go by. And so I can kind of tell that every time I'm at the airport, it's probably not as much tears anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of letting it go used to it or becoming a little bit stronger. When you have returned home or Mm -hmm. returned to someplace you've been, Mm -hmm. did people expect you to be the same person, but you had changed or vice versa? My sister tells me that all the time. She tells me that I've changed. For the better or worse? (laughs) She thinks it's for the worse. Oh, no. Well, she thinks that I've changed as in, like, I'm probably favoring my husband's family more than I am to my side of the family, which is obviously not the case. I mean, I I love my husband's side of the family, too, but my family's my family. So she thinks that I want to do all these things with them and I don't want to do things with them. And she's jealous about that. And I totally get that, you know. Also, I think part of it is cultural. You know, I'm Mexican and my husband's white. So one thing they probably don't want me to do is forget my culture and be try to be Americanized, I guess you can say. And so they probably think I'm changing in that aspect. Next quote. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Uh, strong in the sense of uh, knowledge to an extent. Strong in the sense of spirit. Uh, spiritually speaking, uh, that's true. And uh, I want to also insert, uh, speaking about God's wisdom, because uh, I lived on both sides of the coin uh-huh. and uh, thought that I knew and thought that uh, that I was on my way to success and, uh, and what life uh, held and come to find out after I met wisdom uh, that... Uh, I didn't possess wisdom at all, and I found out who the who the main wisdom of life is, uh, and of living, is uh, God, of course, and uh, His strength that He gave me. I had false strength and false courage, but His courage and His strength that He gave me made me have knowledge for forgiveness, uh, for compassion, and uh, long suffering towards somebody and uh, generosity and those other, and kindnesses, 
deeds that I more or less lived unto myself right. instead of the other way. Sometimes I, I think that sometimes when people are at their weakest, like when they're really down, they tend to be more humble and maybe forgiving because they want it so bad themselves. I don't know. I believe that God can put us in that place to learn us a lesson, to learn us something. Uh, the Apostle Paul made one of the greatest statements ever made when he said that when I am weak, I am made strong through suffering. And, uh, and uh, there's so much truth about that. And, and he, he said, I, I'm, I'm glad, uh, my version of that scripture, uh, I am glad that uh, I fall into these places and, and, uh, because, I, because I am made strong when I am weak. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I can't make it, when I don't know, when, uh, when I feel uh, so discouraged and I'm weak in myself, he comes. I give him a chance to come. Mm -hmm. and make me strong. And I believe, God, I believe that God does that. And I know that from exam example of myself. So sometimes the strong maybe don't feel they need God as much or they don't depend on Him as much? Oh, most certainly. Uh, the proud person is, is a loser. I mean, he's, he's a bad loser and, and doesn't realize it. And, and a man that, uh, that you cannot tell something to, and you see it, and other people see it, and he resists, resists it, resist the, uh, the lesson or the knowledge that you want to contribute to him, you know. And, but I've seen people like that, that they were, uh, they knew so much that it made them stupid. And, uh, but a proud person, and I'm thinking of one right now, and I can't mention his name, and God humbled him. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Ask everything. No matter it is do good for me or do harm to me. Ask everything. I still deeply believe that forgiveness is the best in this world. When you were in college, sometimes you told me that you had some trouble with other, other girls. Were, was any of them more difficult to forgive than others? Firstly, not, because at that time, every person is selfish at that moment. You cannot balance it. So you think in but college age, people are more selfish? A little bit. And that oh, envy or jealous. So when people are that age, you think they have more envy or more jealous of each other? Yes, yes, which is competitive with each other about the uh, marks, about the boyfriends, mm -hmm. about the, um, the other friend and uh, whose friends have strong background mm -hmm. and whose friend has more money, power, but jealous of everything. So how long did it take you to forgive some of those girls? Since after the graduation. When they gave you your, degre <laughs> your degree and you said... I forgive all you jerks, you and you and you, and you're <laughs> using your middle finger to, <laughs> to, to point at everybody. <laughs> but when I graduated, I did not have such um, forgiveness ability, not yet. Yeah, it takes time to forgive okay. all of them. So the, <laughs> these days, now that you're more of an adult at work, or you've been around the world now in different countries, uh, is it... How long does it take you to forgive somebody now, do you think? 
in one hour. Whoa. So for that one hour, what do you do? The first minute, I feel so upset and just want to argue with him and want to discuss with him firstly and say he's so bad to me and I just try to be kind to you, but you give me such a horse and and just uh, that will be takes about 20 minutes mm -hmm. then I just told myself that mm, okay he's him and you or you you cannot change anyone and also that is his business it's not yours mm -hmm. and uh, his words his actions cannot disturb any piece of the time or the feeling of you mm -hmm. if you continuously keep the bad mood with him or your day will be waste uh -huh. you should be happy but you waste the happy time just because of him so we said angry is uh you feel angry just because you use uh, other people's mistake to punish yourself ah that's great they say another way to to forgive somebody is if you find their car and you break the windows, then afterwards you feel better and you can forgive them. What do you think? <laughs> do you think this is a good idea? Um, I was going to say, when you go to jail, you'll have a very light heart. I would not go to the jail. <laughs> I would have that limit. <laughs> if you break all those windows, you might go to jail. No, without the camera, you know? Oh, yeah, you're smarter than that. So without that camera, then I can break the window. Okay. That'll be good. Is that why the window to my apartment was broken? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Remember, it was broken for like a year and a half, and I froze in the wintertime, and no one would fix it? So now I know. <laughs> now I know. Because no camera. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. I think when I've been the most weak, I was focused on the most negative aspects of not wanting to forgive. And I couldn't imagine that I ever would be able to forgive. And as I've gotten stronger through healing from my illness and just, I guess, aging, I've started to understand that forgiveness is more of a thing to give to myself. It, it has less to do with the other person in a situation than it does about me taking better care of myself. So forgiving others like, has never been an issue my, for you? It's mostly yourself? No, no. It's a major issue because I'm not speaking with my mother right now, so I clearly uh. have issues <laughs> not forgiving her. <laughs> um, I mean, is it but, is it a two-way street? Is she kind of holding out on something on her end? or? You know, officially, she yeah, definitely she is. But, you know, people who are good at manipulating other people kind of can make it seem like they aren't doing anything wrong. Oh, man. You know? I know what you mean. It, it's like a, I, yeah. It's like they're Jedis about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, Jedi's are only able to do that to people who are weak too. You know, yeah. so ouch. So, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah, well, so so me taking a break from her is is me trying to you know become stronger. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and uh, and you know, I've learned to also love her in this like 
higher level, more spiritual in a way. Like I really appreciate her spirit, but man, I really don't miss when she calls me anymore. (laughs) You know, the actual talking to the human on the phone, she would only call me when she needed something Uh... only. I mean, it was amazing when I had that realization, I was like, wow, she's the only person I know who only ever calls me when she needs something Wow. And never starts a conversation with asking me about myself. We, we tend to emulate our parents. Have you found that characteristic in your own interactions with others? Or is it something that you've beaten, you, th- you feel? Well, what I've observed about parenting is that you have this horrendous choice to either do what you know or put the work into doing what you feel that you should do for you. And and that's a lot more work. That second option is is a lot of Uh, work that you're doing while you're tired. I always try my very best to put that work in because what I know from my parents is not something that I would ever, ever, ever want to put on another person most of the time. I didn't know my dad. uh, He died before I was really old enough to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And there are elements of my mom's personality and parenting style that are very precious and sweet. And I really try to emulate those things but then there's like the the parts that that didn't go well I'd say I probably overcompensate for my kid is going to have her own issues we'll be in therapy someday for who knows what and I'm not doing (laughs) things even remotely perfectly I'm well aware of that but my goal is to not screw her up in the exact same ways that my mom screwed me up so just screw up in a different Uh, way yeah which makes it so that I I can't just copy what my mom did because, yeah, I mean, like, she couldn't figure out how to have housing consistently, you know? Uh She couldn't figure out how to not be in a a cycling, physically and mentally abusive long-term relationship. And I I think part of why I gained weight when I did was partly because I just didn't have food consistently growing up. I think there was, like, a psychological thing I was working out of. That hunger that I had growing up that wasn't just that I was physically hungry. Mm -hmm. It was that I knew that there wasn't any food, and I knew that there wasn't going to be any food. And I knew that that situation was chronic. And I knew that I couldn't do anything to change it because I was too little. And my mom got me working in weird ways from really early. I started being an extra in movies when I was, like, nine. Really? And she'd always keep my paychecks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of fun. Like, I got to skip school and be on a movie set. Were you out in Hollywood? You know, meet actors and stuff. The movies that would come to New Mexico, there were, like, probably about six a year that would come to New Mexico. No, it was, like, random things, like Twins and, um, let's see, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Uh Danny DeVito. Uh Bet you missed that one. (laughs) No, I did see that. It was great, because I, I, and I think about that film a lot when you meet two siblings who one's compl- yeah. completely awesome and the other one's is like, ugh. And, you start and it to, happens a lot, It does right? happen a lot, it's yeah. True. It's amazing. <laughs> I think I'm actually visible in that one. And most of them, they couldn't actually see me. And I worked as a, my official title was set costumer when I was 13. I hadn't even started high school yet. <sighs> and they had fired one and then another one hadn't come from L.A. yet. And so they had me do this totally grown-up job. Mm-hmm. It was like 14 hours a day, six days a week. And she still didn't let me keep my paycheck. I was like, man, like. That's kind of blow. This is, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty sad. So, yeah. I talked to my daughter about money, but not, like, I want her to be aware of the fact that things cost things. And she can't mm-hmm. just, like, have everything on the planet right. handed to her. But I, I work really hard to try to make sure that she doesn't think that the world is, like, the sky is falling. And, right. 
I think one thing my parents did, which was right, was that, uh, I mean, they did a lot of the right things, but I'm just saying, like, one thing in particular that made yeah. an impact on me was they, I had allowance, I had to earn it, you had know, to do chores around the, the farm and stuff, but they, they made me save some of it, and the others I could do whatever I wanted with it, and uh, nice. I remember saving up for an R2-D2 toy, and uh, <laughs> it was probably only like a couple bucks, but it took me a long time to get that much money. And I was so excited. I'd been looking at it at the store every time we went to Kmart or Airways, whatever it was at the time. And uh, so the day came. I had I finally had enough money for it, and I bought it. I had the most empty feeling when I left the shop because I thought, Oh man! Because I, I, I worked <laughs> like great. for a year for this piece of plastic, <laughs> uh, and I was like, What do we do now? <laughs> After that, I just I was a tightwad, and I sat on my money. Yeah, are, are we still in the forgiveness one? Uh, we are, aren't we? Yes, yes we are. Yeah. Go. Okay, well, so I'll, I'll try to sum this up real quick because this is weird to share, but I will. So my father committed suicide when I was one and a half. Oh, man. Yeah, um, but I, so that was upsetting for me as a child. My mom told me way too early. I was like five, and that's the story behind why I didn't smoke pot because she said that he got really stoned, uh -huh. and then he went out into the mountains with a gun. And yeah. so, and she told this to a five-year-old. So. Whoa. I thought that he like left me, you know, I thought that he, that he kind of chose to go away and didn't love me enough or uh -huh. something, you know, I mean, I, I just didn't understand. So this was in 2010, so five years ago, I was talking with my kind of aunt who was around when my dad died. And it was amazing because I was a grown up, you know, I was in my early 30s. And she explained the context of the situation. And um, it was in the middle of the winter and there was an economic depression going on. And there was like no food. And my dad was trying to go out and hunt rabbits so that he and she and her husband and their kids would all have something to eat. Winter in New Mexico in January is really harsh. It's really cold and really windy and really dry. And there's, you know, no resources. If you weren't one of the rich people on the other side of town, like you don't have anything and you're hoping you know spring will come quickly right. so I just had this amazing incredible overwhelming sense of forgiveness for my father dying yeah. it just it made sense like it was totally understandable and I got it and I just wasn't mad about it anymore it like it just hit me like a rock and I didn't plan for that either like I think I really think you can't force forgiveness I think it happens when when it's going to happen so then what's really crazy about that is that uh, I was really sick still with my uh, my bladder disease, mm -hmm. and I didn't assume that I could ever necessarily um, bear children because of it. And later that day, I conceived my daughter. The same day you found out about your dad? The day that I forgave him. That's amazing. Yeah. And she's totally an incredible human being, too, and I think she kind of came through in this amazing window of the beauty of, of that moment of forgiveness, you know? No, but I just heard that the other day, in fact. This lady, in her head, like everything, all sickness is caused by something wrong with your spirit. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think there's something yeah. to it. Like when you don't forgive, it does affect you physically a little bit. I think so, yeah. Again, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. I think that you have to be self-secure to forgive. I think that's an attribute of a strong person. Has there been times in your life where you couldn't forgive and it had to do with your security or lack of it? I'm not necessarily sure that it has to do with the lack of self-security, huh. but 
as much as a weakness of character. Oh, okay. Do you care to, to expound? No. You don't? Okay. <laughs> Is it me? No, because I, you. Because I accidentally set your dog on fire? No. No. I do think that if you can't forgive, it doesn't impact the person you who can't. has wronged you or the thing that has wronged you. It impacts only you because the other person or the other entity doesn't care that they have wronged you or mistreated you or whatever. So you can say that this person you didn't forgive for a while, it, it just only affected you? Yes. How did it affect you? I'm yes. curious. Well, anytime you harbor ill feelings, it impacts you mm-hmm. and keeps you from being a happy person. I think it makes you an unhappy person. When you harbor ill feelings, like what does it come down to? Is it like imagining their destruction or going through a list of all the reasons why you can't stand them or or all the bad things they've done? For me, it's just repetitive thought. It keeps me from sleeping oh, wow. or okay. it keeps me from being happy if I'm focused on something negative. So in order to be a better person, I try to focus on the positive and forget the negative. And I think, going back to your original quote, that it takes some amount of strength of character to be able to do that. Not necessarily physical strength, but strength of character. Right. Is there somebody out there that hasn't forgiven you as far as you know? I don't think so, but I have people in my life who harbor resentment towards other people and things. And I think in general, they're not happy people. Are they weak people? I would say, yes, weak in character. And last quote, humility comes from discovering who you truly are and then realizing how desperately you need God. Was there a point that you realized you desperately needed God? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't go into too much detail, but in my early 30s, I guess, I mean, I knew that, and I did some intentional soul-searching and reading, and uh, I went away for a couple days in the woods by myself in a cabin and laid there and prayed and cried and read, and I think... uh, I came out of it with what the Bible describes as the refiner's fire. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that there are a lot out there, especially in the, maybe in not just the Christian world, but in the whole uh, religious and self-help world that haven't went through that, and maybe some of the things that they're saying is a little disingenuous, or they're saying all the right things, but maybe it doesn't seem like they've actually lived it? Oh, yeah. I think that's the biggest problem with Christianity. Okay, well, uh, we can go to that. Let's use the recent unpleasant tree of Joel Olstein. Okay. And, uh, well, I don't know that. So. Do you know who Joel Olstein? is? I know is? who he is, yes. And I like Joel Olstein. Uh-huh. He's a pastor of this very large church. He, and so large it's in, in the former arena, a football or basketball arena. It's a giant, I mean, it's huge. It's, and Joel is a very likable, motivational kind of preacher. Uh, he has his own radio show, a radio station on XM now, and to, and to one of the people that called him to congratulate him and his wife was Oprah Winfrey. Well, wow. there's a warning sign right there for you. <laughs> Why would you say that? Explain. Because Oprah... Because uh, a lot of people idolize her and think she's got it together. 
Oprah has some very mixed up theological thinking, mm-hmm. and, be, and and when you're so wealthy that you think what you think is the truth, you see not not believing God's commands or disbelieving God's commands or disbelieving. I don't mean the Bible. I mean specifically God's commands that are in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Disbelieving God's commands does not negate God's commands. Mm-hmm. People that don't need anything, especially very wealthy people that have every need met, that have yes people around them, are very easily susceptible to thinking, I don't believe that, so it must not be true. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the success breeds that. Right. You know, you know That's why a lot of people get jailhouse religion. And that doesn't make that any better than finding God if you are wealthy. But my point in that is that Let's take this, but I was listening to him the other day, just for giggles, and I do like a lot of what he says, and I think he has helped a lot of people, but he quoted, he was talking about God giving you everything that you desire, and he quoted the part of Isaiah, where the people are complaining to Moses that they've had no meat, and they're wandering, and they have no meat, and God says, I'm going to send quail, and he sent quail every day for like 30 or 40 days. I'm going to send you so much quail, you're going to get sick of it, right? I and mean, that's his point. Mm-hmm. His point wasn't, I'm going to bless you so much, mm-hmm. you're going to get sick of it. No, his point was, you ungrateful ch- children, but Osteen didn't read the whole scripture. He only read the part where, and I'm going to send you quail every day, and he's going to bless you abundantly. And that's where he stopped. And that is so wrong, because those people are now going, well, God, you know, it says right there that God will bless me so much. That's not what God was saying in that, but Osteen, whether ignorant or on purpose, and he's too, you can't claim ignorance at this point. You can't do that because that's misleading and that's that's lying to people. God sent them so much quail to as a, a punishment and said, you are so ungrateful, how dare you, when I provide all these things for you, that I'm going to continue to send you this until you're so sick of it, you can't take it anymore. And yet, as Osteen turns it around and says oh he provides so much you know i mean the whole story uh, of the people wandering is desiring something and their needs being met and then and then them complaining again mm-hmm. i mean you know so it's redemption and forgiveness and it's just it's a cycle and and um, we would tend to think well i would never do that but yet you know i find myself doing that well yeah god i met all my bills this month but next month i'm still worried about you know right. Again, humility comes from discovering who you truly are and then realizing how desperately you need God. So people, I feel like, and especially celebrities, or I mean, and not even celebrities all the time, but people can be so consumed with material things, you know. I feel like people um, need to buy the like the most expensive car, buy the biggest house, you know, to like keeping up with the Joneses. I guess if we're being real, you know, I love clothes and I love fashion and I always want to buy stuff to make me feel good. In my mentality, I'm like, I buy clothes so people will look at them and not me. How does that work? Well, so because they're on like, you. But so people will be like, oh my God, that's those are some great shoes. Or so like, uh, I'm very self-conscious. I don't like eye contact. I don't like, maybe if you see, notice it, I don't know. But I like... <laughs> I kept wondering who you were looking at. I, I know, kept looking behind know, my shoulder. I'm just like, like mm. So in theory, shouldn't you wear like plain Jane clothes then? Well... I don't like attention, but I'm hurt if I don't get it. Well, it's not that... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Calling me out. 
No, um, but I'm the same way. No, I, okay. I can totally say this. That's cool. Yeah. When people compliment me, it really makes me feel uncomfortable. But at the same time, if my efforts go unnoticed, well, it, it bums me out. Maybe it's just my face. I don't like when people look at my face. I'm like, oh, maybe they'll just look at my clothes instead of me. And we'll be like, wow, she has really good fashion sense. And, you know, hey, for me, that's a good compliment. I don't care if people say I have pretty eyes or whatever. That's my whole being self-absorbed kind of thing. But there's a quote that Jim Carrey says that I wish people would become rich and famous and have everything they ever wanted so they can know that that's not the answer. You hear about so many famous people who commit suicide. People like us, we think that they have it all. But for them, there's a void. For me, the Bible says that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So if you could have everything that you ever wanted and in a split second it could be taken away, what are you? What do you have left? For me, Jesus was probably the most humble person in the Bible because he didn't hang out with the Pharisees and all the upper people. So, and he washed feet. Yeah, he washed the feet. He yeah. hung out the sinners and every, he was meek and lonely. And feet are gross. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hate feet. For me, it's like, yeah, I need to be more like him. Has there been a point in your life where things got really good and you got kind of confident in yourself, mm-hmm. but you still realize that you need God or maybe you got a smack down? Um, I could say maybe during my early 20s, there was a time when I was like, man, everything's going great. You know, I have like everything. For me and my personal beliefs, I kind of walked away from God. Then something happened and I was like, oh my God. You know, for me, I was like, what am I doing? And that's when I kind of started getting my life back together. And I think it maybe had to do with like, you know, you're early in your 20s and you're in college. and, and You think you know it all. Yeah. And especially if you're from California, you're like, <laughs> we got everything going on for us. Is that a thing out there? <laughs> I don't know. People always say Californians are snobby. They're super liberal. Is that We're true? dumb. You know, because we uh, talk surfer talk. You know, like right. Hank Ten, bruh. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you said it right. That's cool. <laughs> you know, well, I used to go surfing every day. Yeah. So somebody has showed me a video of this guy who was a surfer from L.A. And he was being interviewed because there were some massive waves. The stereotype was so correct because if you watch the video, he's just like, you know, he's just like all these things. And I'm like, oh, my God, we are done. Like people think that of us, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. Again, humility comes from discovering who you truly are and then realizing how desperately you need God. I did not grow up in a church-going family. My mother was a Catholic. My father was a Protestant. Back in those days, if a Catholic woman married a non-Catholic man, she was kicked out of the church. Mother didn't, because she had been in that nice, strict, organized Catholic church, could never find comfort in any other church. My father was perfectly happy not to go to church. But you would say he was still religious or still had faith? I don't know about my father. I really don't. But my mother was still religious. And so we certainly were brought up with a strong moral training. Maybe it wasn't emphasized that that morality was because of our respect for God and our religious beliefs. But we were grown, We were brought up that way. My older brothers and sister, well, my sister actually is Catholic. She, she did go back to the family faith when she was old enough to start choosing. But my older brothers basically ended up in Baptist churches because they started dating girls who went to Baptist churches sure. because we were in Kentucky and what are there? They're Baptist churches. Yeah. Unless you're on the river where there are Catholic churches. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, their religion grew with that. And 
in the exposure, it brought out what we are trained. And I, I go to a Methodist church not because I think the Methodist church is better than the Baptist church. I go to the Methodist church because when I was in college, I started dating this girl. She went to the Methodist Student Center, so where did I go? I went to the Methodist Student Center. When she dropped me, I then developed friends at the Methodist Student Center. I was then active in the student leadership of the Methodist Student Center. And then I met my now wife there at the Methodist Student Center. And so she was obviously a Methodist. So we're Methodists. We're Christians. Many of my friends who have been in the church for a long time can tell you the day they became a Christian. They can say, I remember it so well on on August 6th, back in my junior year in high school, we were having a revival at church. And I was listening to the preacher and it just, it hit me that I just wasn't right with God. I needed to get right with God. I went down and I knelt down at the altar and I prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I don't have one of those. It's become almost uh, orthodox, even though it'd be hard to find it in the Bible specifically yeah. about having to know the, the time of the date. And... Yeah. I feel that part of the reason I don't have one of those mountaintop experiences is I also don't have one of those deep in the valley experiences. I can't point to you a place in my life where I was so low there was no place to go but up. But at the same time, every day you're going to choose whether or not to continue this exactly faith. But when you look at it in terms of what do I believe? The one thing I truly believe is that Christ accepts me even though there is absolutely no reason he should. And that's, that's the, the humility of it. Now, have you always known that or did that develop over time? Well, I mean, I didn't even think about that until I started becoming active in the church. Mm-hmm. But in watching and looking at that, in reading the Bible, in reading a lot of other materials, because I think you have to explore. I think God expects us to think. I was going to say, so you, it's not like you haven't had an unexamined life. Right. You know, I could point out, though I won't do it on tape, many of the sins that I have committed that aren't little sins that, as far as I'm concerned, should have disqualified me from any chance. But the good news is that God knows we're going to make those mistakes, and God accepts that we're going to make those mistakes, and God accepts us. And, and that's the true humility to me. Now, humility in terms of, do I think of myself lesser than other people or greater than other people? I sometimes get caught in the uh, mode of thinking I'm better than somebody else. And I sometimes get caught in the mode of thinking, man, I wish I could be that person. Certainly from a religious standpoint, there are plenty of people I look at and I say, I wish I had their devotion. We'll, We'll go to a more personal issue that deals with religion. My youngest son is gay. My son decided he was gay or realized he was gay. I think it's more realized he was gay when he was a junior in college. He told us he was gay the first time we visited him in New York City after he graduated from college. And in talking to him after that, we found out that his biggest fear of telling us he was gay was the fact that my wife and I are active, very active in the church. I teach a Sunday, at that time I was teaching a Sunday school class, I don't right now. I don't know if he felt ashamed of being gay or he just feared that 
we would have the automatic reaction that publicly the church seems to have, gay is bad. Or he, he may have felt that if he came out as gay, it would hurt our standing within the church. Yeah, you know, so whatever the, the reason that it bothered him that we were strong, but that's one of the reasons he had waited so long to tell us. And it also gives me a quandary because I have grown up with the church. I mean, I've been a member here for 30 years almost. The church basically says gay is wrong. Are they so close-minded where they can't come to church? Or is oh, it no, they no. Just... We're, we're, we're Methodists. We're very right. Okay, very... so it's not like they're hateful. because that's. I they're not to, hateful. I want to make the distinction because a lot of people don't make the distinction. Yeah. That... They're not hateful. As a matter of fact, we have a book of discipline. This, this is the official, this is what the Methodist church believes. It says that homosexuals are people of worth, that they are God's children, but that we do not condone their practices, and they can't serve in leadership positions. Well, the first thing is, I don't care, even if he was a mass murderer, he'd still be my son. Sure. So the fact that he's committed what the church thinks of as a significant sin isn't going to stop him from being my son. He is getting ready to move in with his boyfriend and... They're getting an apartment in New Jersey together. So serious relationship. And we're going to treat that boyfriend just like we treat my daughter-in-law because that's his significant other. And I've come to the decision, my wife and I have come to the decision in talking with our son that who he is now is who he was always meant to be. He said basically he grew up waiting to find girls interesting because all the other guys found girls interesting. And he kept waiting, and it never happened. And then, while on a uh, study abroad program, he was exposed to a couple of gay couples Mm -hmm. within his study abroad group. And he saw that the feelings he had for other guys was all right to have. That apparently it wasn't abnormal, just unusual. We've come to the decision that God doesn't make mistakes. Some make the argument that, okay, so for example, I have certain inclinations that I, I know are wrong as a, as, a, as a heterosexual male. Yeah. Right? Because we're all at that potential, you know, I don't act on it. Do you think that that argument could be made for uh, homosexuals as well? That would be one of the primary arguments that is made is that your sexual tendencies don't define who you are. How you act on them defines who you are. So if you're a rapist, that's obviously a bad thing. If you have sex with your wife, that's okay. Could it be said that he could choose not to act on it? Certainly he could choose not to act on it. Would it change who he is? I don't think so. Most of, and I don't want to pick on the Catholic Church, but it's an open issue in the Catholic Church. Most of the priests who have violated the sanctity of young boys, didn't intend to. And a lot of them went into the priesthood because they said, the reason I don't find girls attractive is because God wants me in the priesthood. But at some point, they stopped being able to fight their natural tendencies. My belief, if you're truly homosexual, you're homosexual, whether you act on it or not. Now, I have seen a lot of students who act homosexual But most of them, I think, are acting. They're doing it for attention. They're doing it to be different. They're doing it to fight authority. 
I, I hate to say it, the flaming homosexual, the ones that are that are trying to be seen. I'm not sure whether they're really homosexual or whether they're seeking attention. The people my son hangs out with, for the most part, are quiet homosexuals. Now that doesn't mean they're closet homosexuals. Right. They're not trying to make a statement of anything. Right. They are who they are. If you looked at my son, he's a handsome young man that every girl would want to go out with. Now, does he occasionally wear clothes I wouldn't approve of? Sure. <laughs> but why is it that we focus on that sin? We don't focus on the guy who sits beside me in Sunday school class who is with his second wife now, but was actually with his second wife while he still had a first wife. Humility comes from discovering who you truly are and then realizing how desperately you need God. We've all kind of heard that expression that people think their parents are stupid until later on in life, then they realize how smart they might have been. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that necessarily. but <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I hope your, your parents are listening. Oh, one of them's dead. Okay. <laughs> and the other one wouldn't understand. <laughs> Go right over their head. <laughs> I think as you go on in life, you finally realize that, you know, in the big picture, you're not that big. It just takes time, I think, a life and experiences to realize that uh, life and this thing is pretty big and there's a lot of smart people and there's a lot of people with different opinions that, you know, you're just a little duck in a big puddle and it's not all you're not so isolated and, and there's more to life than just what you think and how you think about it. well let me ask you this it seems then the the generational mistakes is going to be perpetual because you know if you only figure out towards the the second half of your life you would think like we would learn that on the front end or it would be more beneficial to maybe the people that we accidentally hurt or we act selfish with or, or whatever well i think part of what life is we're not that mature yet to even think. And, I, you know, some of the things I learned later on in life is someone tried to tell me, and they probably did try to tell me. I didn't take them serious, you know. I, it, it wasn't that place in life. I didn't care, you know. You talk about saving money. Well, it's hard to tell a first grader. You need to start saving money for college, you know. But I do think education does help in that respect. You know, when, like, I went to high school and stopped, my world was pretty small, but when you go to college and you do experience a lot of different people and all different ideas and get a higher education, I do think it helps you maybe learn those how inadequate you are a lot faster. You know, I think a lot of mine maybe had to do with when your body is not as, doesn't have as much stamina and is healthy. When you first, you know, maybe, you know, your first part of life, you can maybe think you don't need to ask anybody to help you. You can do this, you know, you don't want to bother your body. But eventually there comes a time when, you know, somebody does have to do something for you. And it's nice to be able to have that advantage. Uh, is it humbling, though? It's humbling. It's hurtful at first, you know, especially your health, you know. That's the main thing that I would say that hurts is to find out you can't do what you used to do. But kind of find out there's lots of people that are willing. I didn't realize it at the time or didn't take it serious. There's people that are willing to do things for you. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is ask, but you, and you would, resist that And we so would much. be hurt if you didn't ask. Well, maybe so. 
But I know at work now, I've got a pretty young crew. They're just out of high school, pretty much. And it's surprising how willing they are. You know, I never would have thought that about a co-worker. And I think it has to do with two generations between us. They think I'm just an old, decrepit guy. <laughs> but uh, and I'm about ready to fall apart. <laughs> but it is nice in that I can say, hey, in a kind way, would you mind? No, I don't have a problem. Or even, I've even found people that have actually come and suggested, hey, you want me to do this for you? And I've never experienced that in life. Uh, I would say as far as a marriage, I, I wish I had learned a lot, lot, lot sooner that for the most part, you know, your, whoever you marry is going to be your partner the rest of your life and not that you want to build up points with them, but that's the one person you really need to treat right because you don't know how the tables are turned. In my case, I'm having to depend on my wife to take care of a lot of my things and if I had made her mad and of course she hated my guts that'd be hard for her to do and I, and I wasn't always nice to her and I'm sure she probably hated my guts a few times <laughs> but the fact is you know eventually I got wised up and I finally realized that even at work I can get a lot more done if I just brag on people and tell them how good they're doing and you'd be surprised and for some reason for years and years and years I had a hard time even saying thank you probably or I appreciate you, but I've gotten over that with my wife for you know a good while ago. You know we don't have any problem appreciating each other, but on the workforce it was a different story. I have a hard time saying something that I don't really believe is true. Like to say to somebody you did a good job, and in the back of my mind I think you're a lousy worker. But <laughs> someone said, well, you if you say if you say it in a phrase, I really appreciate your good work. You don't say they've done any good work. You say, if they did do any good work, you appreciate it. Uh, so in that way, you can give him a compliment and not lie. It's amazing how much the, our department will get along and they're kind of more of a family than the other ones that are just bickering all the time. And it has nothing to do with me. I think it's just a matter of respect for each other. And the source of the quotes? You should never return to water you knew as a child. The water you remembered has moved on. Is by Dave McKean, a British writer, illustrator, and filmmaker best known for his collaborations with fellow Englishman Neil Gaiman. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Is from Mahatma Gandhi, who was the leader of the Indian independence movement against British rule, famous for his method of nonviolence inspiring other like-minded movements across the world, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights efforts in the United States. Humility comes from discovering who you truly are and then realizing how desperately you need God. It is attributed to Mark Brown, whom I sadly don't know who he is or where I found this quote from, but if he's truly a humble guy, whoever and wherever he is, he can't get too mad at my failure to pull him out of obscurity, I figure. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com.